This week, I um, found out that there are some apps on, uh, on our phones that can help you lose weight in your selfies. In other words, you take a picture of yourself, and sometimes like, ooh, that, man, I'm, I'm a little chubby. And there, you put, you put on this app, and there's a filter that you can determine a certain percentage, and it literally makes you, like, like drop the weight off the selfie. Uh, you might wonder, why would people want to do that? Uh, that's, that's, that's what I wondered when I read about that. And some of you may be wondering, why would you not, if that's a possibility? Uh, to look better than you really are. Have you considered that as much as our society is trying to help us look better than what we really are, have you considered that the Bible is not interested to make us look better than we really are? Some may want the Bible to be more like a filter that makes you think of of yourself or of ourselves as better than what we truly are. To be able to put a face to the others, to the outside world, that we really look better than we truly are when no one sees us. But the Bible is not interested to be a self-image filter. Rather, the Bible is interested to be more like a mirror that speaks candidly about our condition. And that's why the Bible does not hide our blemishes. Not even in the case of the big human heroes of the Bible. And that's what we're going to see this morning from the life of David. Would you open God's word to 1 Samuel chapter 27? We'll be reading from verse 1 to chapter 28, verse 2. Yes, sometimes the, the chapter divisions in the Bible uh, are not the most helpful in helping us understand uh, how a story connects together. And this morning we are breaking the division of chapters to understand what is happening in our text. So 1 Samuel chapter 27, if you have a Bible, we encourage you to open it. Uh, if you are visiting with us, we are currently working through a series of, of messages through the book of 1 Samuel. This is God's word for our hearts this morning. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish. I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer with within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, 
he no longer sought him. Then David said to Akish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country's towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Akish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days of David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkey, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Akish. When Akish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremalites, or against the Negev of Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to, for war, to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, you reveal yourself to us in your word. And in these moments, we want to ask of you to tune our hearts to be receptive, to be open. And I pray that you tune my, my mouth to declare your truth faithfully. We pray, Father, all this in the name of Christ, knowing that your word is able to build your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let me make a confession. If I was not committed to the expositional preaching of God's word, and by that I mean taking the word of God and working our way through it, uh, faithfully, consistently seeking to teach from it what the, me the meaning of the word is, if I was not committed to that, I would never choose this text to preach from. And some of you may be wondering, I wonder what he's going to get out of this one. I mean, I know it was a pretty easy shot, you know, about David and Goliath. Uh, I get about some of the rescue stories uh, in 1 Samuel, but what is this about? In most of this book, Saul has been the villain. The example of what not to do. Don't be like Saul. And so many of the chapters have portrayed for us a better alternative in David. 
the better king that God promised to raise. Yet the Bible will not allow us to have a flawless picture of David because he was not flawless. And in this chapter, we see that even David is a kind of man that has facets of what not to do and be like. The Bible is not trying to hide the blemishes of God's people. The Bible is not trying to present its human heroes by only focusing on their strengths and weaknesses and, and, and positives. We also see weaknesses. And the failure that we see in David today is not a moral failure. What we see today is a trust failure. What we see today is a fear failure. And fear began controlling David's mind. Then he began controlling his plans. And then he began controlling his actions. So the message this morning could be entitled, When Fear Takes Control. Uh, there are four parts to this text, and therefore we'll have four lessons from this, from this message. Uh, here are the, the, the lessons. I'll, I'll say them quickly. Uh, don't worry about jotting them down now. You'll have an opportunity as we go through it. Fear can lead to human solutions. Fear can lead to human solutions. Lesson two, human solutions can lead to immediate success. Human solutions can lead to immediate success. Lesson three, immediate success can make us vulnerable to compromise. Immediate success can make us vulnerable to compromise. Lesson four, compromise can easily gain us the wrong admirations. Compromise can easily gain us the wrong admirations. I pray that each of these lessons from this chapter can be an encouragement, a challenge for us this morning. Fear can lead to human solutions. This is the first part of our message this morning. Notice how chapter 27 begins. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. What a turn in David's heart. On one side, we can understand why David would begin feeling this way. After all, since chapter 19 in this book, Saul has been trying to kill David, left and right, consistently. Uh, the largest section of this book focuses on David's wilderness wanderings as a fugitive running away from Saul. And this has been going on for over a decade if we were to look at a timeline of time. David has been running from Saul to save his life from, from the hands of the one who would be so committed to kill him. So on one side, we can understand why David is afraid for his life. On the other side, if you've been following with us in the series for the last few months, this reasoning in David's line is a bit surprising. I might even say out of line. When I began working at this, at this chapter and trying to make sense, what does this chapter trying to teach us? The, the very first truth that arrested my attention was, whoa, 
Why is David saying what he's saying to his heart? After Saul rebelled against the Lord in chapter 15, uh, for those of you who have not been with us in the series, let me just give a quick overview. In chapter 15, Saul rebelled against the word of the Lord. And after that rebellion, the Lord said, I'm taking away the kingdom from you, Saul. You will no longer be king over my people. I will raise up a better king, a king better than you. So in chapter 16, God sends the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house in Judah and says, I will tell you who you will appoint for me and anoint for me as a king over my people. And Samuel, led by the Spirit of God, appointed and anointed David to be the next king over God's people. But that didn't mean that David received the throne right away. Quickly, Saul begins figuring out that the Lord is with David. The Lord is giving victories to David that Saul could not earn and have. The very first victory was uh, David killing Goliath in chapter 17. And then from then on, the people of Israel begin praising David more than they begin praising Saul. So Saul begins uh, a jealousy over David and begins pursuing him to kill him. But throughout the, the journey of Saul pursuing David, the Lord has given David assurances that he is the next king. For example, Saul's own son, Jonathan, is one whom the Lord used to encourage David that he is the next king. Jonathan switches allegiance from Saul to David. And then we have other characters throughout the book, like Abigail, the, the wife of, of Nabal, before he died. Abigail encouraged David that he is the next king. And then even Saul himself, twice in this book, got to the place where he confirmed to David, verbally spoken to him, I know that you will be king, and that the kingdom will be established in your hands. The best summary of all these stories of, of David running away from Saul, and yet being confirmed and encouraged throughout the journey in the wilderness, the best summary of all this would be in chapter 23, verse 14, where the narrator said, And Saul sought him, namely David, every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And even in the previous chapter, in chapter 26, David himself exhibited great confidence in the Lord. David's last words in chapter 26 were these in verse 24, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, he spoke to Saul, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all my tribulations. And last week's message was about the great confidence that David had in the Lord. And yet, after chapter 26, after stories of great confidence that David exhibited in the Lord, comes chapter 27. When David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Is this what God had spoken to David? No. Here's a David who killed the Goliath. Here's a David who has seen God's hand in protecting him through all his troubles. 
Now, as we come to the end of the book, David's heart sinks under deep discouragement and fear for his life. There are times in the lives of the people of God when no matter what the victories of the past have been, no matter how much encouragement we have received in the past, there come times when we think like David. When we begin talking our truth, our experiences, our conclusions to our own hearts, David began talking to himself. And he began listening to himself. And what David said about himself was different than what God said about David. God said that David will be the next king. But now David says to his heart that one day he will die at the hands of Saul. Let me ask you, who is David listening to? He's listening to himself. He's going to consider his circumstances after a decade of running after Saul and seeing that the Lord is not delivering him from the hands of Saul. Is this going to turn out and end the way it looks? Is Saul going to kill me one day? Who is David listening to? Is he going to remember what the Lord has spoken to him? Or is he going to consider his current circumstances and listen to his own advice and his own assessment? Unfortunately, in this story, in this moment, in the book, David begins listening to himself. And notice in verse 1, what he speaks to himself and what he acts on. He says, there's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Do you see David's reasoning? There's nothing better for me than I that I should expect that I escape from the Philistines and stop Saul's searching for me. Now I ask you, as external observers watching over the story, and as the narrator tells us what was going on in David's mind and heart, the, the, the thinking, the logic that was going on in his mind, the narrator tells us that. And I ask of you, do you really think that there was nothing better for David to do? then he should escape to the Philistines. There's one thing that David often does throughout his wilderness wanderings. We often have found him in times of difficulty and uncertainty seeking the Lord in prayer. He would ask the Lord, should I go on this battle? Should I not? And then we often find in, in the Psalms that many of the Psalms were written during seasons when Saul pursued after David. 
But in this chapter, there's no sense of David seeking the Lord for guidance on what he should do. And there's no psalm written about this episode in David's life. We don't see traces also of the Lord's guidance. In some passages, uh, the narrator will tell us, like last week, uh, when, when the people fell asleep, the narrator told us that was the Lord giving a deep sleep upon the people so David could do what he did. There, there are evidences that the Lord was involved. In this chapter, it's as if all the references to the Lord go silent. All that is emphasized was David's thinking in his heart, his planning, and the execution of his plans. Friends, when you are overcome with fear, consider your logic and be cautious of your logic. We have weird ways in which we reason, especially in moments of fear. In our fears, our logic naturally inclines us on finding human solutions. It will often say things like, there's nothing better for me to do. And then fill in the blank. Human solutions have the center of gravity. Their starting point is, I have nothing better to do. Instead of thinking, who is the Lord? What has the Lord promised for his people? What is his character like? What does the Lord want me to do? What has the Lord spoken? Fear has a way of causing us to forget or dismiss the promises of God and the plans of God. Fear has an ability to paralyze us, to make us lose sight of God of his word, of his promises, and of his plans. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of the mid-20th century, wrote a wonderful book entitled Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. In the first chapter of the book, he says the following. It's wonderful because it applies so well to here, to our passage. We must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. He says, do you realize what this means? I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to your to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. And then you begin listening to what yourself is talking. Friends, when we give in to fear, we replace what the Lord has spoken and said with what we say, and what we want to do. When we give in to fears, our words, our circumstances seem stronger than what God is able to do to handle them. Instead of giving in to our fears, the Lord calls us to bring our fears to Him, to turn to Him with our fears, 
to wrestle with our fears as we turn to the Lord. Sometimes believers think that in order to turn to the Lord, you must first deal with your fears. That somehow the Lord would not accept you if you are fearful. Oh, friends, the Lord would rather have us come to Him with our fears than wait until we are fearless and then come to Him. Instead of listening to yourself, consider speaking God's truth to yourself. Let me make a, an, a recommendation of another, another resource, another book, a sh much shorter book called Note to Self, The Discipline of Preaching to Yourself. It's a short daily devotional, what it means to apply God's truth to your heart on a daily basis. David is a man who, in a different season of his life, penned the words of Psalm 56, in which he said, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Yet here in chapter 27, David has forgotten that he has written those words. Oh, friends, we need to preach to ourselves daily. When we feel discouraged, when we feel afraid and tempted to do what is better for us in the moment, remember that the saints among God's people are prone to this temptation. It happened to David. It can happen to us. Don't despair. Don't think that there's nothing better for you to do than come up with your human solution. There's something better for you to do in such moments. It's to preach to yourself instead of listening to yourself, to remember who God is, to remember what he has said and spoken, to bring your fears, to bring your hopelessness to him and to wait patiently for him. Sadly, fear all too often can lead us to turn to human solutions. That's, that's lesson number one. Lesson number two, from verses five through nine, we see a, a second lesson. Human solutions can bring immediate success. Human solutions can bring immediate success. At the end of the first scene, we read that David's plan worked. Look at verse four. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he, Saul, no longer sought him. It worked. There's immediate effectiveness. David successfully averted Saul's efforts to chase after David. This is the first time in the whole book when we read that Saul finally gave up searching after David. And then we see more evidence of immediate success. Verses 5 through 7. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country's towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the king of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, Achish, by the way, David has gone to him before. David has fled to Achish 
the first time he ran after Saul or away from Saul. And at that time, it was fairly shortly after David had won against Goliath. Goliath, Goliath was from the city of Gath. Achish was the king of Gath. At that time, David alone, after the battle against Goliath, was in big trouble with Achish. And he had to pretend like he's insane to get out of his hands. Remember that story? The first place David ran to get away from Saul in his wanderings was to Achish. And the first time, it did not go well. This time, at the end of the book, David flees again. Where? To Achish. But this time, he's not alone. This time, he has 600 soldiers with him. This time, David is not as vulnerable as he was the first time he visited Achish. And for whatever reason, the narrator does not tell us. Achish acted very favorably towards David. Perhaps, and most likely in my view, I think Achish is playing the political game. By this time in the book, uh, Achish probably figured out that David is Saul's enemy. So Achish is playing the political game. My enemy's enemy becomes my friend. Achish not only received David and his entire army with all their families, I mean, we're talking about easily 1,500 people. This was, a, this was a, a major group. Achish not only receives them all, but Achish even gives them the city of Ziklag. What a different treatment Achish has given David compared to Saul. Saul would keep chasing after David, but a Philistine king shows David great favors. Who wouldn't choose that choice? But don't think that Achish's kindness uh, was an act of pure kindness. Achish was hoping to exploit this new partnership with David in order to weaken Saul so that the Philistines could attack Israel again, which we will see happen in chapter 28. And we will see Achish's plans in chapter 29. Uh, here's a lesson. Human solutions can bring immediate success. They can. Human solutions work. And that's what makes them so luring. But don't assume that it's necessarily the path the Lord intends for us. Don't assume that immediate success or relief is a confirmation of God's blessing. We're so prone to believe that the immediate results of a situation, the good results of a situation, are a confirmation of God's direction. It can be. Uh, the Lord does bring results. There's no question about it. But not all the results are a confirmation that it's the Lord's work. So the truth that God's word works and is effective is stated for us so beautifully in verses like Isaiah 55. The Lord says, therefore, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I send it. Wonderful confirmation. The Lord and his word is able to bring results. We can trust it. God's word will produce results. But results themselves are not a validation of what is true in the sight of the Lord. Pragmatism. You may have heard this word from me before. Pragmatism is a philosophy, is an ideology that evaluates and assesses truth based on immediate results. And it says something like this, or here's the logic. There is success, therefore, it must be true. It must be right. And so much of our lives today are guided by this philosophy of pragmatism. Uh, there are great advantages to pragmatism. Uh, we don't want to follow something that ultimately does not work. We don't want to invest in something that is ultimately ineffective. I get it. But there's a subtle danger in pragmatism to think that just because something works in the here and now, it is a validation that it must be true or it must be right. So don't fall for the lure that if, if there's immediate success, it must necessarily be God's will or plan to act in this way. The second story, the second lesson in the story in this chapter is that human solutions can bring human success. Lesson number three. Immediate success can make us vulnerable to compromise. Immediate success can make us vulnerable to compromise. While in Ziklag, David and his men did not stay inactive. We're told in verses 8 and 9 that David and his men uh, made raids against the Geshurites, against the Gerzites, against the Amalekites. Uh, now, the Geshurites and the Amalekites were among those that God had decreed to be judged for their wickedness, for their centuries of wickedness. And God intended Israel to destroy them. That's what God asked Saul to do. If you remember in chapter 15, to destroy the Amalekites, to entirely wipe them away, to wipe away the memory of them from the face of the earth. Why? Because they have so sinned against the Lord that it was time for God to judge them. Saul had failed to obey God's decree against the Amalekites. He did not wipe them out entirely. So here we see David fighting against Sku against the Amalekites again. Now, on first impression, it seems that, that David is continuing to do the work of clearing up the land against these enemies of God's people. Except that when the Lord had given those commands, it was supposed to be a total wipeout. And that's not what David is doing here. He's killing the people, but he's keeping all their goods. God has not given David this call at this point in his life, like he did to Saul in chapter 15, to wipe out the nations. These raids against the nations were not God's mission. These were David's initiative, or David's mission. And while it may seem to some that David is carrying out 
the conquering of the land, of what was left undone by Joshua, this immediate success is more on David's terms than on God's terms. David wins battles against these groups and keeps the spoil, bringing some of it to Achish. And when Achish asked him where he made the raids, David said he's making the raids against the land of Judah. In verse 11, we are told why David really killed everybody behind him. It was not because the Lord had decreed and told David to execute his judgment against these nations. No, we're told in verse 11, David will leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, this was the motivation, lest they should tell us, tell about us and say, so David has done. And such was, his Dav such was David's custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Now, friends, it was not because David, uh, the Lord commanded David to execute divine judgment that David killed these tribes. It was more to cover his back and tracks. David was not on the Lord's mission here. He's on his own mission. It just so happens that the two missions can look from the outside to be so overlapping with one another. But David, in order to do what he wants to do, uses deception again. Friends, immediate success can make us vulnerable to compromise. Immediate success can make us confuse God's mission with our mission. Immediate success can make us think that our plans must be God's plans. Immediate success can make us vulnerable to cut ourselves some slack in our integrity of speech and actions. Throughout this chapter, there's no confirmation or affirmation of what the Lord is doing through David or what the Lord is doing for David. In this chapter, David is all on his own. He's apparently successful on his own. And that's what makes his success be vulnerable to compromise. Friends, what about you and I? Do you tend to consider results as a validation of what is true and right in the sight of God? Are you tempted to cut yourself some slack in integrity just because there seems to be so much success in what you are doing? And then there's lesson number four. The final lesson of this chapter. Compromise can easily gain admiration from others. Compromise can easily gain admiration from others. In this particular case, it seemed that it was not hard for David to gain the admiration of a pagan ruler. Verse 12, Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Achish has grown in his openness to David from receiving him and giving him land to giving him the city of Ziklag and now trusting that he would become his servant forever. But now Achish is so impressed with David that he not only wants to give him stuff, Achish actually thinks that David can be his servant forever. And his favors to David are clearly self-interest motivated because the next time the Philistines gather again for battle, and we see this in chapter 28, verse 1, 
the next time the Philistines planned battle to battle against Israel, Achish had already given the command to David that David and his men will join Achish. It wasn't just an invitation. It was a command. You will join me in my battle. You will fight for me. Achish had an agenda. And the agenda of Achish was not just stop at one battle. You'll just join me in this one battle. Oh no, Achish had plans to make David his servant for life. Now, just take a, just take a pause here for a moment. Think of the destiny the Lord has given David the first time we see David on the scene of this book. God called David to be his king, to be a king over God's people. And here is this pagan ruler whom uh, David was able to lure into admiration. And this pagan king has very clear hopes for David. He also has a destiny for him to be his servant forever. Friends, what a different destiny Achish had in mind than God had in mind for David. When we consider these destinies, which one would you rather have? Yet in the moment, in what was going on in David's heart and life and, and life season, serving Achish seemed a better deal for David. That's the scary path. That's a scary part. And when, David commands David, uh, when Achish commands David to join him in the war against Israel, David said to Achish in verse 2 of chapter 28, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Interesting response from David. You'll have to wait until chapter 29 to see how, what, what sense we're going to make of those, those words. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This is a job offer for life. Oh, friends, I wonder if we notice what kind of admiration David is able to get, what kind of trust David is able to work up from Achish, the Philistine king. But it is clear and without a doubt that this admiration is only there because David was able to deceive Achish and to play the political game as well. The story of David and Achish will continue in chapter 29. But for now, the author stops here and leaves us hanging. What are we to do with such a high degree of trust and admiration that Achish extends to David? Yes, David was able to gain this admiration, not because he acted with integrity, but because he acted with deception. This is not the admiration of Gentile rulers who are convinced by the wisdom of God granted to his people, like the queen of Sheba coming to, to admire the wisdom of Solomon. No, this is the admiration of a Gentile ruler. And this admiration was gained through compromise and deception. This is the admiration gained by pretending to be what you're not. Friends, we too can be lured in the temptation of gaining admiration from others by pretending to be what we're not. By being one person on Sunday 
and being someone else Monday through Saturday. Have you ever tried playing that game? The game of seeking to gain the trust and admiration of others by pretending to be different than what you really are. The pressure to be someone else on Monday through Saturday is very serious. Or worse, it's possible that your true self shows up on Monday through Saturday and your pretense is what you do on Sunday. Either way, these games, playing the political game with God and with others, is a real lure, is a real temptation for God's people. It was a real temptation for David, the one who was destined to be God's king for his people. Living a double life, a life of compromise, can gain us the admiration of others that we're trying to fool. Oh, friends, you can gain the admiration of others by pretending or putting a facade. And it can work. And it can bring results. It can bring immediate success. It can bring a path that looks better now. But it will never work in the end. As we will see in chapter 29 and the end of this book. The story of David at the end of his wilderness experience will prove the point that, that David's logic and what he's trying to do to gain advantage over Achish by, by luring him into admiring him, that does not work. If we consider the original audience to whom this text was first written, it might help us to make sense of why this author is giving so much attention to this episode of David's life, which will be continued in chapter 29. Why is this story broken in half? And then we will have chapter 28 with Saul going to a, a medium. Why is there so much attention to David seeking to do this with the Philistine king? Well, because I think there's a clue in this chapter that helps us make sense both of this chapter and actually of the entire book. The clue is verse 6. If you have your Bibles, look back to verse 6. This is an important clue when the book was written and for whom it was written. Therefore, Ziklag had belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Think about what this means. About when the book was written. This verse tells us that the book was written after the northern tribes of Israel split off from the southern tribes of Judah. This book was written way after David, way after Solomon. This book was written when it was already a divided monarchy. When the northern tribes have, and their kings have turned away from God. And the southern tribes were the ones who were still the, the more faithful ones. Uh, their, their path following the Lord was a little more constant than the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom went off the rails very quickly. But the southern kingdom and the kings of the southern kingdom, they were, they were, they were trying to be faithful to the Lord. But they too had moments of oscillation. They too had moments when they actually turned away from trusting in the Lord. The kings of the northern tribes have become corrupt, 
corrupt quickly. The kings in the southern tribes were in general more godly, but they too were lured by the temptations to make alliances with, with pagan nations instead of relying on the Lord. And the book of 1 Samuel was written to help the people of Judah understand what kind of king they need. In this book, the people of Israel have rejected God as their king. They wanted a king to be like the nations, so God gave them Saul as their first king. But very early on in his kingship, Saul's reign faltered. Saul rebelled against the Lord, and therefore the Lord removed the kingship from Saul. And then God said, I will raise a better king in David. But here we see that even David is susceptible to making wrong turns. Even he is not above the lure to turn to human solutions. So it's a way of saying, kings of Judah, watch out how you're leading. Watch out what turns you are making. The Davidic line of kings is no guarantee that every king in your line will act righteously. Going on your own, trusting and leaning on your own wisdom is not the way forward, kings of Judah. Even if it brings you immediate relief or success, even if it brings you the admiration of pagan kings, even if it means or it seems more advantageous to your agenda, this chapter actually shows how David, the great David of the line of David, escaped the path of suffering in the end by choosing a self-made plan to bring the suffering to a close on his own terms. It seemed successful for a while, but it was a path of compromise. It was a path of, of wrong admiration. David has failed, even though in the eyes of the Philistine king, he seemed so successful and desirable. Another king would come from the line of David who would be pursued relentlessly, but he would not take the shortcut in the suffering. Instead, he would take the path of suffering that God had determined for him, and he would walk on that path of suffering to the very end. Jesus is the king from the line of David who endured the suffering to the very end. In Jesus, we have a king who truly endured the suffering to the end. And when it felt like it was too much for him to endure, he prayed to God. He even asked the Lord in prayer, would you take this cup from me? But at the end of the day, this king said, yet not my will, but yours be done. Oh, friends, this is a much better king we need to rely on. Every other human king, even ones in the line of Judah, everyone before Jesus have failed in some way or another. The king we need is the one who would endure trusting in God, even in suffering, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Because it was through the path of enduring suffering to the very end that this king would actually accomplish the battle for God's people. Through that enduring to the end moment was how King Jesus would actually finally bring the reign of God over sin and death and execute the power of God to conquer sin and death. Oh, friends, this king's name is Jesus. 
And if you've never trusted in him, if you've never considered following him, consider that he's a king who would not put pause on the path of suffering and saying, what better is there for me to do than try to escape and save my life? Jesus did not push that pause button so that you and I can be redeemed and rescued from our sin and death. This is the king that we as Christians proclaim. This is the king that we as Christians worship. This is the king that we, we as Christians love following because he followed the Lord to the end. That's why if you're not a Christian, if you're visiting with us this morning, perhaps someone invited you to come. We want to encourage you to consider the ultimate king that David pointed to. Even in his short fallings, even in David's weaknesses, Jesus surpassed them. Jesus fulfilled them so that when we turn to Christ, we are becoming the people of a kingdom who will never fail because Jesus never failed. We become the people of a God who never fails, not because we are not able to fail. We are able to fail, but we become the kingdom of a God, of a God who never fails. If you have trusted in Christ, but feel tempted to listen to yourself all too often, consider the foolishness of letting fear control your mind, of letting fear control your plans, of letting fear control your actions. We can learn from David these lessons. Fear can lead us to human solutions, especially if we forget God's promises and plans. Human solutions can bring immediate success. Immediate success can make us vulnerable to compromise, and compromise can easily gain us the admiration from others. But at the end of the day, the greatest lesson we must keep in mind is that we need a king who chose not to take shortcuts in his suffering so that he would save us from the clutches of sin and death. To this king we want to turn, even in our fears, even when our fears want to take control of our minds, of our plans, and of our actions. What keeps you from turning to him? What keeps you from turning your fears to him? Do you think that he will shortchange you? If he did not shortchange himself for protecting his life, you can trust he will not shortchange you. Turn to him. Let's pray.